One of the things that uh, I always wanted to learn is how to play piano, and I don't know why I never never did, but it's uh, uh, I, I want to do it. And I, I remember I was talking to my friend uh, Bill Hammond, uh, who. Um, uh, is an accomplished uh, uh, pianist, among many other things. And uh, we, we were having uh, breakfast, and uh, um, I happened to mention that. And he said, well, would you like to learn right now? And I said, what are you talking about? He said, I'll give you a lesson right now. And that's that's who Bill Hammond is. He is a master teacher. He's a teacher up uh, in the Dartmouth area, a principal of uh, of elementary schools and middle schools as well. But he's a um, he's just one of these people that uh, changes changes people's lives. He's like a super teacher, if you will. Uh, and it's just uh, uh, I think a great person to talk to on the Sidcast because while um, lots of people around the world, around the country, might not know who Bill Hammond is, uh, every single single person he's touched in his classrooms over the space of decades knows exactly who he is and uh, can probably tell you their their own Bill Hammond story. So let's hear uh, let's hear some more um, and welcome Bill into the studio. Welcome to our podcast with Bill Hammond. Good morning, Bill. Good morning, Sid. So, Bill, where did we meet? I was thinking about this in preparing for our chat, and I know that at Tuck we created a, um, I'll call it an executive program for um, K-12 administrators. Um, and we had a lot of people from the Upper Valley, but from some other really good school systems. Mm-hmm. And you were there and you were a big part of that. Um, and I'm thinking that may have been the place, although... That was, yeah, that was the leadership conference. That was the Tuck leadership put together. program. We were trying to take a look and seeing if uh, the kind of leadership skills that you learn in business school would be relevant to right. the educational institution. That was, that was the question... Uh, and it was an assumption that the answer was yes. What, what was the answer for you? Oh, I'd say yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I think that the ideas of leadership, uh, how to help people move forward, are uh, something that you can just do in any institution. And there's so many situations in education where you need to move people forward, either uh, as a principal, moving teachers forward, moving students forward, or uh, or just moving a community forward. Right. Oh, the community. Um that that part surprised me because I get the the students, I get the teachers, I get the administrators. Yeah. What were you thinking about with moving the community forward? I think schools sometimes are thought of as being in boxes, being in buildings. Right. But, but the real learning happens right. out in the out in the world, and so um, you know we're partners with the parents. We are partners with the people in the community who want to help the kids learn the skills and the values that we think are most important. Right. You, and you said. Building. So I've worked with some other school systems um, on you know, leadership issues and training, developing talent, and you know some of that work, obviously. Um, and I, is it true that the word that most people use is building when they talk about the school? I'm in charge of this building, and uh, or is there another word that's like an odd word? I'm yeah. Because oh, yeah. it's about. It should be about the people. It should be about ideas. It yeah. should be, should be about the community. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know. Um, I think it's, it becomes a location. The school is a location, and its location is really important. And the reason it's located in a specific place is because of the building. Right. So maybe that's why it's used. Maybe, as maybe a, that's what it is. Uh, but even using that descriptor, that metaphor, yeah. creates problems. Because a school, and I want you to kind of give me your take on this, but yeah. a school is, is an idea. Yeah. Um, it's an organic, living 
system. That sounds really kind of out there, but it is <laughs> uh, where where you know you want to engage all kinds of different things, and you want to create something that didn't exist before. Not just, especially today, yeah. not just telling a bunch of kids. Well, you got to know, you know. What happened in 1066, the yeah, Battle of Hastings? Yeah, yeah, and I write about that. I yeah. Can, uh, although, although we've had a very interesting uh, uh, presentation on the Battle of Hastings. Uh, of course, you have. Tell the, us. That the French <laughs> teacher does, all with puppets. It's to help them learn French. But she comes up with this whole oh, puppet man. story about uh, the Battle of Hastings and how good is teaches that? vocabulary that way. It, how good is that? And you mentioned the building too earlier. The, yeah. The, bu- the building itself is sort of where we gather at first, but we don't stay in the building at all. Uh, physically physically we don't stay in the building we've got uh, a number of different places that we go on the campus um, on the grounds of the school and and off the grounds one of our uh, strong feelings is that students should know a lot about the environment around them and so we have a whole system where kids are outside kindergartners spend one day a week outside in the forest in something called forest fridays where they're personal responsibility is to find out what happens with rotting logs during the course of the year. They just notice what happens with the changes. And they track it week by week. and They track it week by week. They have their own personal sit spots. Yeah, but they, they look at the bigger picture, too. But each, each grade level has a responsibility for a different habitat. How do you, how do you explain that type of um, learning to, let's say, someone who went to school in the 1940s or 50s or 60s, mm-hmm. where they sat there in the classroom, you know, the, the desk's in order, mm-hmm. right? And there were probably 30 or 40 kids in most classes in public schools, certainly. And they got their textbook, and they have to memorize all this stuff. I mean, that's, I, I think about you know, when I went to school, that was actually what it looked like. And when I went to school, too, yeah. which was about the same time. I Probably <laughs> was. <laughs> Probably was. So uh, what do you tell parents that look at this and, and, and kind of scratch their What do you mean they're going to be outside and looking at logs? Yeah. What I'd say is that we know a lot more about how the brain learns. And we know that uh, when students are active with their learning and active outdoors as opposed to just indoors, the kinds of impacts on their brains is is very positive, not only for their learning about the environment, but for their learning of math, for their learning of science, for their learning of okay. Uh, so, writing. so can I push you on this? Of Please. course, I'm a believer, but yeah. But how do you know that? How do you how do you know that our, that helps our brains learn mm-hmm. these things? Uh, well, in terms of uh, a study, could you do a study that would do that? That is harder with any individual group of students because uh, a real good study would make sure that you would compare. The students control, themselves. And, uh, oh, I see. Right. Because you need a control group of some you do, you do, uh, but if you, the best one is to control students to themselves, but they'll have two different experiences whether they go Which through they this. cannot. Yeah. So, so that's an impossible study to do. But what we do is look at the general literature. Mm-hmm. And, for example, a um, study came out about the importance of uh, movement in students' learning. Not only movement, but anticipation of movement. So if kids are getting the physical education, if they're getting the recesses, if they're getting time outdoors, uh, these studies indicate that the students are um, better able to access and absorb and um, differentiate between mm-hmm. ideas in their other classes. Recess is good for you. Recess is terrific for so, you. So w- what did you say? I mean, were you scratching your head or banging your head against the wall at this movement to get rid of recess? That was a few years. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe people are still saying that today. I'll tell you. They were saying it a while ago. <laughs> Stud- students already know that recess is great for them. How, how often do they pick that as their favorite subject? You know, when they're asked the favorite subject. And that's what they say. recess and PE. In yeah. part because they know that just moving is great Imagine for Imagine asking your customer what they think. Yeah. 
it's a, it's a, another revolutionary <laughs> idea for education, right? Um, uh, so the, 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 you've been a teacher for your, your whole career. Really. Yeah, I taught for 30 years and I've been a principal for seven. Um, did you know you were going to be a teacher when you yes, grew up? Yes, I did. You did? Yeah, I did. Really? How did yeah. you know? Uh, Does anybody know it? I don't know. <laughs> it was just sixth grade. I thought, yeah, I just I want to teach. I like. I think I liked learning a lot. I liked what right. my teachers were doing with me, even though it was in rows. And <laughs> but there was a lot of learning going on still. And I remember talking to uh, my seventh grade science teacher when I was absolutely convinced I was going to teach. And I uh, I said to him, you know, I I really want to be a teacher. And he looked yeah. it back at me over his podium, and he just shook his head and said. Don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> he said, don't do it. He said, don't do oh, it. Boy. And I could tell that he was just tired, you know, that there were, there's a lot that as you aspire to something that you don't know about and um, the, the volume of work. But it, that didn't, didn't discourage you. No, yeah. not at all. Even when he said it, it didn't discourage me. I, I sort of laughed. Yeah. And, uh, but he, he was joking, but he was not joking. He was joking and not joking. I think he had been teaching for about 25 years. He was my favorite teacher. He was very dynamic. He had us in a science lab trying to figure things out ourselves. Right. Um, but that takes a lot of work. And uh, so the balance, I think, that he was trying to go through was whether he could continue with this career that he loved. Right. And whether he could maintain the energy to continue it. So, uh, so he was uh, a role model as a teacher, it yeah, sounds like. No right? question. And um, Mr. Viola. What, what was his name? Mr. Viola. Okay, so this, of course, proves yet another one of the Sid theories, which is you never forget your super bosses. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you never forget those leaders, those teachers, yeah. those coaches that really, you know, they impacted you. Yeah, they can impact you on the other side, too. I remember in high school that I had a short shift toward thinking I was going to go into engineering because I liked the math and science yep. part. And then I realized the reason I was thinking about that was because I could make more money in engineering and that money was not really that important to me. So I shifted right back to teaching. When, when did you figure all this out? As a kid? Yeah, I was sixth, seventh grade. Yeah, you were pretty you yeah. know, introspective and thoughtful about this. Uh, it just seemed right. You know, yeah. sometimes when you find the it right thing... Right. Uh, it sits well with you. Does that mean uh, that kids should kind of go with their instinct, go with their gut a little bit uh, in trying to figure out I think they should do? be aware of it. Yeah. I mean, I, I think about careers that last 40, 45 years. You want to be doing something that you really enjoy. You want to be doing something that you want to, you want to love because there will be some days that won't be so good. That's right. But, but the idea behind it may still be great, right. even, even though the individual days might not be good. And so you can work your way through those different right. times. So a career, you just said, you know, if you think about a career, it could be 40, 45 years. Yeah. So that in and of itself is a fascinating idea yeah. because many people today say we, we will not be, I don't know about us, yeah. <laughs> different stage of our careers, but people starting out or graduating from college, they're not going to be in the same career. It's going to look so different uh, because of, well, artificial intelligence and robotics and all the things we keep hearing about and, and, and knowing about uh, yeah. and seeing, right? Uh, and then you're going to have to kind of be a constant learner. Um, uh, I don't know if you've read, so I, uh, sorry, if you've read yeah. Harari's books, uh, what is his name? Um, um, Noah Yuval Harari, the Israeli uh, historian. Yeah. Um, no. He taught, he writes a lot about um, um, artificial intelligence and its impact. And one of the things he says is that people, and he's thinking about people in the workforce, some of them may not necessarily be 
uh, as educated as others, they're going to need to learn and relearn multiple times in their career. And one of the things he's worried about is whether they even know how, because a school system is not the only factor that makes you know how to learn, but it's a big, big factor. Not everybody went to kind of the schools that you've been part of. Uh, And so they don't know that process of learning. Yeah. Right. I I would say that uh, a good school would work on this idea that we are all lifelong learners, that we are, um, that we're not just what we start out understanding. And I think that's part of the excitement for kids now, that they know that school is not the beginning or the end of their learning. I I keep thinking of careers versus jobs. I I think people are going to have a lot of different jobs, perhaps, but, but they may still have a single career, even if it's in a bunch of different companies, even in a bunch of different fields. The career be spans all of that. The, the career then is something that's going to connect these various jobs together in some way. It doesn't even have to be, yeah, I suppose it would be connected in some way, but it doesn't have to be a connection that other people understand. And, uh, and yeah, it doesn't have to be a connection that other people understand. But you yourself either will understand or over time may come to see it. Uh, you might not see it right away. All those things are possible, right? I'm thinking of my stepson right now okay. who, who was in the Marines for five years, mm-hmm. and then he uh, went to Purdue and got his degree in aeronautical and aerospace engineering, did that for five years, and now he's going into nursing. Hmm. And here's a, here's a kid. That's not a natural segue, I'm thinking. None of those are, really, necessarily. Necessarily, yeah. Yeah, but he just he loves to learn, and he's also keeping an eye out on what kinds of things inspire him. So he was inspired by the military for a while, right. and he was inspired right. by engineering for a while, and now he's how did, how healthcare. Does, Bill, how does anyone know what inspires them? How do you? Sometimes you just pay attention to yourself, pay attention to your mind and your body. Yeah. Is, this, yeah. is this something that's making me aggravated every day? Am I going <laughs> home and just complaining mm-hmm. about what's going on at um, at work or at school or at a job, right? Or is it something that you go home and you say, "Guess what happened today?" Yeah, you have a story. Yeah, you always have a story. Yeah, and it's not a story about you know uh, Sally or Tom next door that made you crazy with some kind of right. complaints, right? Or, or that you um, start worrying about relatively superficial ideas. You know, that mm-hmm. didn't get enough pencils today at school, and <laughs> boy, that was a real problem. No, right. it's about the relationships that you develop with people and the kinds of inspiration that they have for you and you have for them. And this, uh, so this is interesting. So if you're, probably you coach or talk to a lot of parents along the way, and I would imagine more and more parents, whether they ask you directly or not, because they all want to know about their kid and how the kid's doing, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera. Um, they, they want their kid to be successful, whatever that means. Mm-hmm. And to be successful means to kind of have an understanding of what kind of path to get to. You don't need to know 10 years down the line, five years down, but you, you want to have some kind of understanding of what that is. And it's the same. So what I'm asking is, is, is the same version of the last question, except now from what you might explain or teach a, um, a parent about what they can do. What can a parent do to help their kid kind of discover what they're energized and excited, what their, mm-hmm. what their passion is, uh, what their path is, what their career and the way we've been talking about it should be. I'd say pay attention. Pay attention. Because uh, 
your kids will let you know what they're most interested in. And if you pay attention to how they're responding to certain things, mm-hmm. they'll let you know. As opposed to kind of telling them you should do this. This is what you should do next. Yeah, this is what you should do next. Make sure you have this in your background. Um, you can talk about those things because sometimes it's it's really important to right. have, uh, you know, if you want to be an engineer, you want to have math and science in your background. Yep. But that doesn't mean that there's only one path to get to engineering through math and science either, that there are lots of different classes you could take. And in fact, I, I find some of the most um, creative people who go into fields are ones that didn't do the normal path. Really? They're the, they're the ones who um, hmm. studied statistics and suddenly can apply that to a new uh, position that people haven't, hadn't used for statistics before. Right. You think about you know baseball, baseball, they've kept statistics for a long time, but they, they've only used some of the statistics until about 10 years ago. And then there's this kind ago. of revolution and that's happened, right? It is a revolution. It really changes the way people see the game. And some people are worried that you, know, you just should rely on the gut level of the manager to get things done. Right. And others say, no, you know, look, we've got all this other information. Let's at least use oh, that man, information. That's such an interesting thing to think about because I, so I read like, Everyone, probably Moneyball, yeah. you know, um, and uh, that was the first book that gave, got, got into the public awareness, this idea of analytics and data, data analysis. And that actually, you could figure out what you should do, at least give you some guidance, in, the, in this case, in baseball, mm-hmm. um, much more than the gut instinct of the old scouts and the old coaches. And this now is passed over into you know, football, mm-hmm. into basketball, into even hockey, which mm-hmm. is kind of amazing. Probably, you know, soccer and maybe every sport by now. Yeah, they don't talk about it as much in those sports as baseball, but it's absolutely there. It's there, right? Yeah. Uh, But then, you know, the contrast is, well, let's do this analytics versus the gut instinct. But then a second ago, you and I were both kind of agreeing that we should pay attention to that gut. And so how how can we kind of put those ideas together? I think the gut instinct is informed by the data that we get information from. I mean, that that gut instinct is... uh, an accumulation of all the biases we've developed as yes. children and teens yeah. and, yeah. and adults. Um, so do you think for kids, going back to school scenario, for kids, it's a good idea to give them tests uh, that help them uh, understand what their aptitudes are so that they can know what career tracks to go on? You know those Part, tests. Yeah, partly. Partly. I, was, I took uh, in high school... The uh, Armed Services Vocational Aptitude Battery. Okay. We were just encouraged to, that, to do that at my school. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so the recommendation for me was to be a file clerk. And a so, file clerk? Yeah, because oh, I, nice. I think I was good at alphabetization. <laughs> There's a skill set that yeah. transfers. So, so you find some of these things, but sometimes those can narrowly define what you could do as well. Yeah, but, and, but that's uh, assessment malpractice in my view because yeah. there's no assessment that could be that precise. Yeah. I can understand how it might tell you you're better at some, I don't know, I'll make this up, visual thinking or yeah. you're really analytical or you're strong at math. I got that and these are some of the careers that were that. But to tell you this is the job you should do. Yeah. I'm, a, I'm a profound believer that no matter what you find out about yourself, yeah. strengths and weaknesses, right. every one of them can be worked on to get better. Mm. And so... And that's what we work with our students as well. I had a, a student come up to me and said, you know, Mr. Bill, I just heard somebody say something totally inappropriate. And I started thinking about what these totally inappropriate things oh could be. And she said to me, I just heard somebody say, I can't do it. 
Um, and I think that's absolutely wrong. I think you can't do it. That would be a tear to my eye and, if my students said yeah, that. Yeah, and can I put up a poster? Oh, my God. You know, so, it's almost making me cry now. And, it's, uh, that's and that's exactly thing. what we want them to learn, that's, that's that, it. that uh, things are going to be easy sometimes and things are going to be difficult sometimes. In either case, yeah. you have the capability to how, how try old, something How more. old is this girl? She was it? a third grader. That's just fantastic. Yeah. And I felt great about it because that was something that, as a school, we were really trying to work on, making sure that the students knew that mistakes were part of the learning, right. that we establish and right. develop the growth mindset, that it's not what we are defined as. We are not artists. We are not mathematicians. We are learners. You know, we are, even better, we are learning. We aren't just what we... Learning, uh, meaning what we're we always in the process of figuring we're, things out. We're verbs. We're, we're not nouns. We're verbs. Uh, that's a good way to look at it. Um, so very interesting. Right at the beginning, I was asking you this question about, um, you know, Tuck, when you came here to do this leadership program, and was that relevant for you and that helped you? And the answer was yes. But now everything you just said is like 100% relevant for kind of what I do when I work with managers or MBA students because you're talking about creating a learning culture, a learning environment, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and this idea that I can't do uh, is just a killer because many companies that are trying to adapt and adjust, uh, they in, they innately almost adopt that that mindset because they're just good at doing something and they can't so do, can't do the and, and this is what's been going on you know, with the digital yeah. revolution that's happened in industry after industry. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of companies have really, a lot of leaders have really struggled from it. But what you're describing, what the third grader said to you is a really powerful lesson. And that's how we're managers. trying to teach now. That's how we're trying to teach. We're, we're making what? sure that it's not just this is a, a certain amount of information that we want you to have by the end of this year. Right. It's about uh, style of learning. It's about um, developing creativity. It's about uh, focusing on critical thinking and not just believing what you see. And this is with elementary school students. And has that changed a lot over the years? I would say so. Yeah. yeah. I, I would say my responsibility as an educator has changed a lot. Yeah. Uh, at the beginning, the philosophy was more about separation than, than combining. It was about... Separate, you mean different topics? This is this topic then? I'm, I'm thinking more, you know, who, who can really do this stuff? Uh-huh. And don't worry so much about the people who can't. Just find those people who can do the uh, high levels of mathematics, for example, mm-hmm. because we want them to be our engineers. We want them to be our, our doctors. And the other ones will find something to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a narrow and, um, I think, inappropriate way of taking a look at mm-hmm. what learning is all about. But that's where education was at the time. So how do you think about the, so the people that are kind of innately very strong at math and science? You want to make sure they stay on track and they get excited by it. But what about kind of, quote, average kids? that are they, they got strengths, weaknesses, but they weren't born with this kind of Additional capability. I don't. I don't know if they're average kids. How do you know that? I, I've seen fifth-grade basketball players who look fairly awkward, who become the best basketball player by the time they're in high school. Hmm. Uh, I think we we too narrowly focus kids too early by telling them what they can and can't do. That's something that's been going on in sports actually forever, yeah. right? Yeah, and still is. And still is. Yeah, but we're trying to undermine that. <laughs> what we want to do is get every kid to get better. Um, wherever, wherever you're starting, wherever whatever your skill starting. sets are. That's right. And so some of those students who 30 years ago might have been defined as the ones that couldn't do math that well right. 
can actually do math quite well. They could. Yeah, given a different structure, given a different time frame. And sometimes you want somebody who's much more thoughtful about the, the mathematics, for example, um, rather than someone who is very quick at it mm-hmm. but doesn't understand it. They can do the procedures, well, but they don't understand the idea. Computers are very quick at it, and they That's don't have right. to understand it. That's right. <laughs> and so those long-term thinkers are the ones that are uh, doing the analysis uh, even better. So there's a, there's a deeper appreciation for what they bring. And, and, and you're saying you know, a decade or two ago, they would have been seen as lower performers in terms of math skills. Overall, overall. There have always been teachers who've seen yeah. the beauty of all kinds of learning. Uh, what about test taking and all this? Uh, when when kids take tests, um, like statewide tests, for yeah, example, yeah. Uh, they have to they have short periods of time and they got to demonstrate they know X, Y, and Z. Those are changing too. Uh, they're often computer adaptive now. So a student who is making progress on a test, making making uh, or coming up with great answers for each of the questions, uh, the test itself changes and gives them harder and harder questions. Huh. And uh, these are state tests. Uh, they're also, uh, they also don't have a time limit. So some students are finishing a test in 25 minutes and some are taking an hour and a half and it doesn't matter. And it doesn't make a difference? No. And in whatever the, the, the grades that come out at the end, the scores, they're not being differentiated that somebody took a lot longer. That's correct. That's really different. Yeah. I remember many, many a test I took where, whew, you have to close that section after yeah. 20 minutes and go, I mean, isn't that what the SAT still does? Something yeah, like that? yeah. And that doesn't mean that there aren't other tests that we give that are time, just yeah. so that we can help students get better at the facility. Right, right. So what, what's, what would you say to uh, parents that want to help their kids kind of become these lifelong learners? Mm-hmm. So the first thing you said earlier is, you know, pay attention. You know, pay attention yeah. to what your kids want. Sure. Um, is there something else they can do? Be open to that growth mindset. Okay. That, that the idea is that no matter what skill level they are at right now, they can get better. And I would say don't label them too early. You know, even if they say they want to be a, a firefighter or something like that, accept that mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. let them know that there are other things as well. Right. Keep trying. So you're kind of opening up their minds. Or, or they, they can see what the landscape looks yeah. like. Because yeah. the landscape's going to be different uh, in terms of occupations in the 15, 20 years that they're in school. Right. Right. So the, the unit of, of, of measurement of what's, what makes for a, a career is not the job, yeah. but maybe the underlying skill sets that you can keep getting better at, but those skill sets that could apply. And, and you know, the idea of, you, you mentioned relationships, building relationships, mm-hmm. managing relationships, creativity. Um, being able to work well with other with other right. people, leadership skills, those are not going away. No, they are. In fact, there are very few things that we could say are not going away. But that <laughs> those are not going away. Yeah. <laughs> right. It may be the skills themselves that go away. You don't have to necessarily use a wrench the way you might in uh, in trying to help with a car yeah. or something like that. Fix right. an engine. Right. That might not be the same thing. Right. But looking at a problem and trying to figure out how to solve it, that's a skill that people are going to continue to have. Looking there at will problem. always problems. Yeah. There will be problems that you've never seen before. Right. So then how do you respond to that? Mm-hmm. And do you have to feel like you've got to do that individually or in a group? That's the other thing. Right. Uh, that uh, One of the 
challenges that uh, some students have is that they rely on themselves wholly. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm guilty of that sometimes myself, that I like to look at a problem and, and just try to work on it myself. Um, but I know that a better solution often is by getting a bunch of people together and talking about what we could possibly do and then come up with the best collective solution that we can come up with. Right, right. Well, I want to I return a little bit later to this, this idea around creativity and how to help how to generate creativity about, about careers and uh, because there's so many people that are living in that world thinking about it. And it's just really interesting. Uh, but I want to go back to you now and uh, mm -hmm. kind of your, your early days. So um, you grew up in Wisconsin? Grew up in Wisconsin, Kenosha, Wisconsin. Kenosha, is that? Southeastern corner Southeast between corner. Milwaukee and Chicago. And did they have more snow there or, or here in the Upper Valley? I would say there. More, more there. Oh, yeah, at the time. We were right on Lake Michigan, and so oh, we yeah, always the got lake, the lake effect. The lake effect snow. Yeah. yeah. And were you close to Chicago, did you say, or not? 50 miles north and 35 miles south of Milwaukee. Okay. I mean, those we are used to, big cities. Yeah, yeah. We used to play football, I remember, uh, in Kenosha, and we often had to stop because we were coughing so much because of the terrible air. We used to say we'd get the water pollution from Milwaukee and the air pollution from Chicago and then generate our own with the factories. Oh, my so God. A, you remember that? Oh, that's why I came out here. That is? Yeah. Oh. I wanted a place where I had cleaner air. How that's, do you that's, like that's that? That's actually how I picked uh, college. To come here? Yeah. Um, that's so interesting. You know, uh, I don't know if I ever uh, told you this story, but uh, I I'm, my wife and I are originally from Canada, but mm -hmm. we were living in L.A. for six years. Mm -hmm. um, and then I was recruited to come to Dartmouth to mm -hmm. tuck the business school. And uh, I remember you'd take these little planes that land in Lebanon Airport. <laughs> and uh, I, I came, I think it was January the first time. January 1993. Um, it was not warm. No. Um, and you're walking from the little airplane at Lebanon Airport on the tarmac, right, to the um, to the terminal because there's no, you know, there's no jetways or any of this uh -huh. stuff. And as I'm walking, it takes what 10, 15, 20 seconds to do that. Uh, you, you, uh, I was smelling something. I couldn't figure out what it was, and you know, I did figure out what it was by the time I hit the terminal. It was fresh air. It was oxygen. I could yeah. not believe it. It was fresh air <laughs> coming from L.A. Of course, you can yeah. imagine. But um, that's 25 years ago now, Sid. That's 25 years really? ago. Yes, that's 25 years ago. And it's and, and every time we have visitors. You know, recently my uh, my brothers were visiting, and uh, they, they they come up, they they come downstairs in the morning. They say, "I've never slept better." Yeah. I get that all the time. Yeah, yeah. And I say, "It's it's the air, yeah. air and silence." That combination. Mm -hmm. um, uh, anyway, so back to you know Wisconsin here. Yeah. So uh, and you grew exactly. up in kind of a big family, didn't you? <laughs> I did I had and have eleven brothers and sisters? Oh my goodness! Yeah, and that uh, I, I would say that was pretty informative as to how. I would approach the world. All right, let's let's talk about some nuts and bolts here. Yeah. What kind of house did you have? It got bigger. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we until I was born, uh, we had a a three bedroom house in uh, on a street, Sheridan Road in Kenosha. Yeah, and then my my father's mother passed away the year I was born. It wasn't because of me. It was uh, you know she was just older good, and had good, diabetes. Good. Glad you yeah. established yeah. that. Um, but she had raised her children, and she had 11 children in a house closer to your, Lake Michigan, your... my father's mother. Wow. So she had 11 children. And um, so their house was a little bigger, and uh, in the lottery, we got the house. 
So out of all those kids, out of all the kids, uh, they say, "Well, you got the biggest family. Why don't you have the house?" So, so were you, so we were you the, the oldest? Or I was I was number nine. Number nine out of twelve. Okay. Yeah. Oh, so there's a big household by that. What's the age range or the the number of years apart? Twenty one years apart. Twenty one years, all single kids. So no twins. No, no twins. No triplets. And boys and girls. Uh, seven boys, five girls. Seven boys, five girls. Yeah. I, it's hard to imagine. It really is. And I grew up in it, and it's hard to imagine a family, <laughs> a family of that size. So did you all That's, sit down for dinner together? We did. We did. We at had, a very big table. At a big table, yeah. Um, Who cooked? My mom. Almost all, always. We all learned to do parts of things. Uh, we were all part of the process. So we had uh, dishes, and we had setting the table, and yeah. all that stuff. Some kid had to do that. At some point. Everybody had something they had to do. Or, my mom's full-time job was laundry and cooking. Oh, I believe it. It's, it's like running a hotel. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, so you all would sit together, and you all went to local schools. and Yeah. Hmm. So when you uh, showed up uh, at school, they said, oh, another, another Hammond. Another Hammond. <laughs> <laughs> and they never knew which kind of Hammond they were going to get. Because, because you got a lot of varieties, a lot right? Of, a lot of personalities there. Yeah. And, uh, and some liked school and some didn't like school, but uh, all liked learning. All liked learning. Yeah. Uh, so w- what did or do your siblings do? You don't have to go through all of them, but... I, I can do it quickly. Go for it. My, uh, my oldest brother is a professor at uh, SUNY uh, in, um, in Jefferson and Stony Brook. Yeah, yeah. Um, my next sister was a dental hygienist and then a librarian for Cornell College in Iowa. My next sibling is a professional meditator in West Virginia is, with the TM movement. Is this something, it's a he or she? He. He yeah. did, like, uh, for years and years? Yeah, he started in college. So far ahead of his thing. time, because meditation now is yeah, you know, it's required. That's know. right. <laughs> <laughs> next brother's a lawyer and a writer. Uh, next sister writes for the Chronicle of Higher Education. Mm-hmm. Um, next sister's a biology teacher in high school in Wisconsin. His brother is a biology teacher. In, There's a pattern. There is a pattern, isn't there? Yeah, uh, in California, San Francisco. Next brother is a piano tuner right. in Ventura, California. Uh, then there's me, teacher, and then a principal. Uh, sister is a professor at San Francisco State. Next brother is a businessman. Uh, does uh, international work between China and the United States. And my youngest sister is a playwright, down in New York City. Wow. Well, the business guy, he's like the black sheep of the family. <laughs> <laughs> he did, he picked the, a different... They're uh, all, edu- almost all, almost all educated. Why? Yeah, all. I, mean, your I parents, think it was my parents. mother. Yeah. I think it was my mother, my dad and my mom. My mom actually didn't go to college. Mm-hmm. My dad did. Yeah. But my mom was valedictorian of her high school class, mm-hmm. and uh, she just pressed this idea about learning. And they told us early. They told us uh, when we were five or six that if we got to the point where we could go to college, and they wanted us to go to college, mm-hmm. that we were on our own. So that at five or six, we were supposed to start preparing, uh, raising the money. You had make, to start raising money Yeah, at the age of five or six yeah. for when you're 18. Yeah. Oh, boy. Yeah. So they taught us a lot of the financial skills that we'd need in order to yes. survive as well. So we did that. We, we got jobs generally by the time we were 11 or 12 and, uh, and raised the money. And then they said, you know, Go to college wherever you'd like. Right. You've got to do the applications. They really didn't know where I was applying. or or You applied to Dartmouth? I applied to Dartmouth and University of Wisconsin-Madison. 
because Madison at the time was five hundred dollars for in-state. for tuition for in-state tuition. Yeah. Wow. And Dartmouth at that time was about six thousand. And Madison was well known at that time. Very as well, well known. Yeah, it's it was a great, great school. Yeah. I'd sent all my furniture up there. I thought that's where I was going to go. And then what happened? Well, I, I applied to Dartmouth and got accepted. And I wrote back and said, you know, I thank you for accepting me, but I really don't have the money to go. It was eight thousand nine hundred five dollars at that time. How much? $8,905. $8,000. That was for tuition, room, and board. Oh, my God. Yeah, and books. I mean, they had all that in there. And I just said, yeah, I, I really, I, I'm honored that you accepted me, but I really can't make it. And the financial aid officer, Barney Hoisington, at the time wondered, you know, is the only reason that you're not coming because of the money? So he called my guidance counselor, who also didn't know where I was applying, and asked if money was the only reason. She said, I don't know. I'll ask him. So she found me and mm-hmm. called back. That's that's the reason. Yeah. No no email at the time. It was all phone calls and trying to find people that way. Um, and said, yeah, that, that's the reason. And so he said, so if we gave you another $1,000, would that be enough? And I calculated and I thought, yeah, I'd be good for a year. I'll be good for a year. And so I came. And then during that year, they set me up with another financial aid officer as my mentor and he talked about how you can make it work. You can borrow money. You can do this. And it was worth borrowing the money in order to make that happen. So uh, they, they were terrific with me and, and made it so that I could come here for four years. Also, I figured out a way, even though it was only $8,905 a year, uh, that, yeah, was a you, lot, that was a lot of money. repeating that number. It's yeah. going to annoy a lot of parents. <laughs> that was <laughs> a lot of people. That was still very expensive at yeah, that time. Of course. And... Uh, so I had to figure out a way just to live a little more cheaply. So uh, after freshman year, where you were, we were required to live on campus, I started living off campus with friends for cheaper rent. Or I would live with professors. So professors' families used to hire me to take care of their kids while they were off at a, a foreign study abroad program. And so I'd help... Uh, you'd move in, you'd kind of help take care of the meals and stuff like that. You'd be a nanny. Essentially, A student nanny. Yeah. Um, There was one time for six months that I took care of a quadriplegic professor uh, who was here at Dartmouth. He had been in a car accident, and he needed somebody to live in to help him him just become available for the day for for Dartmouth students. So I did that for six months. That was was the hardest six months, I think, of work. But then I would do other things, too, like I... If I could, I would not buy textbooks. I would get them from the library and renew them over and over again so that I wouldn't have to mm-hmm. purchase them. Um, and it worked. It was a way of my getting through four years at Dartmouth. So you really cut back on a lot of expenses. And then when you worked for the uh, professors, this was kind of room board. Maybe they paid you something too. No, room and board. Room board, yeah. which covers you know a lot. That's a lot. Yeah, yeah. that's a lot for a college that's student. That's pretty creative. Yeah. yeah, speaking about creativity. So you did all that and... Um, Wow, I wonder if that's a new model we should be publicizing for how to get kids through college when they don't have the resources. Yeah, I, I don't think it's a bad one, you know. And it, you, you know, you probably learned a lot. From you know the that. value of of the education. I remember figuring out at one point that I was, and this was in '79, that I was paying hundred dollars per class at that point. Hundred dollars per class when I thought of all the money and the time that we spent in class. So I thought, hundred dollars an hour. That's a lot. So yeah. I'm going to make it work. I'm going to make it uh, meaningful for me. Yeah. You want to get your money's worth. And yeah. It turns out you're the biggest input in getting your money's worth. So I do other things too. They let us uh, audit at that point 
up to three extra courses during the course of your four years. So I would often take an extra course, yeah. but I wouldn't do the papers and uh, yeah. the tests. I didn't feel like I needed to do that, but boy, I got some some great information from a lot right. of people. Right. Wow, what a good story. Why Dartmouth? I mean, how did you even know about Dartmouth? It was a good school. It was in the woods. That's what I that was. About. Those That's were your two criteria. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I did have an older brother who came here as well. Okay. Uh, my brother George, who is the, the lawyer writer, yep. and uh, he told me a little bit about it. But you know, when I came out here, I had no idea what uh, I hadn't heard of Middlebury. I hadn't heard of Williams. I hadn't heard of most of the schools that were out in this area. You didn't know they existed. I didn't know they existed. Yeah. yeah. So uh, I might have applied to other schools too had I known they glad, existed. I'm glad as well. that you didn't know because you may have been <laughs> me living too. there. <laughs> me too. I do find that interesting. How many capable, smart kids around the country? It's around the world, mm. but let's just say even in America, that have no clue because of their upbringing. I mean, you had an upbringing all about education. You mm. had no clue about it. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of families where they're not that educated, but for whatever reason, the kid is really, really capable. Mm-hmm. And they, they sometimes they don't even go to university, let alone go to what they're, um, a place that could give them a, a, you know, a chance to really fulfill their potential. I consider one of the biggest scandals of higher education, actually. And every school says they're working on it. Yeah. I mean, at Dartmouth, we're probably doing it as much as anyone. But um, it's, it's just a lot of unbelievable raw material talent that doesn't get that opportunity. If you live day to day, you just you don't necessarily know what those opportunities are. If you don't have yeah. somebody who brings them up to you. Yeah. I mean, I, I remember having a teacher in high school who found out that I got into Dartmouth and I was going. He said, well, I thought you were going to be a teacher. And I said, yeah. He said, well, why go to Dartmouth if you're just going to be a teacher? <laughs> just going to be a yeah, teacher. Yeah, exactly. I thought, huh, here's, here's a teacher who really should be about supporting big education, you know, the learning part of education, not just career uh, development. And, and he's telling me, yeah, just go to the state school. Yeah. Now, yeah. There's nothing wrong with the state school either. But there's nothing wrong with exactly. coming out to a school like But Dartmouth. there's a certain... Attitude implied yeah, in, in yeah. that. So it's kind of interesting. You didn't let yourself get swayed by that guy no. or this teacher that no. said, why would you want to go into teaching? Yeah, you no. kind of knew what you wanted to do. Yeah, yeah. But you also and had, I knew how I wanted to do it, too. What do you mean by that? Well, that, that I wasn't doing it just to go on a career path to be a teacher. That was not my goal. Mm-hmm. My goal was to get as good an education as I could, yeah. as broad an education yeah. as I could. And in fact, I did spend a semester at University of Wisconsin-Madison during my senior year and transferred the courses back to Dartmouth because they had a course that Dartmouth didn't have. Hmm. And I thought that would be a great way to, to get that information. Right, right. So what was Dartmouth like? What, 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 what year did you graduate? I graduated in 83. 83, okay. Yeah. So what was it like in those days? Uh, great school. I remember great professors. I, I spent a lot of time with uh, professors. Um, I, I just I liked the learning and the variety of mm-hmm. opportunities that I had here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And... You're still in touch with classmates? Yeah. And they're all over the place doing all sorts of things. They are, yeah. Anyone, are. anyone else here in your class? There are a few. You know, yeah. You, One of the with? people on the school board is a classmate of mine. I didn't know him then, but I know him now. Uh, a former substitute teacher in our school was uh-huh. a classmate as well. Uh, Funny. Yeah. Well, you know, once you get up here, it's, it just t- it gets it gets in your in your blood somehow. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So, um, so you took a liberal arts education. Yeah, liberal arts degrees are under attack. Yeah, um, I think there's a little. I think we're in almost in a bit of a of a calming 
uh, after a long series of attacks because the economy is so good, mm -hmm. etc. Mm -hmm. But uh, do you think that liberal arts today fulfills the potential, which is to teach you how to learn, teach you how to think? Uh, some of the things you've described you're doing with your kids mm -hmm. on critical thinking. Do you think that the way a liberal arts university education, you can reflect on obviously mm -hmm. yours, but you know, it goes back you know, three decades, but what's going on today, is it, is it fulfilling the potential in a world where you're going to have 10 different jobs and you have to keep learning new skills? I'd say any institution can always get better. Yeah. You can always look for things to improve. But, but the overall idea behind college education, I think, is uh, one of the extraordinary um, developments of humanity. Let's, let's take the ideas that people have come up with up to this point mm -hmm. and share them with as many people as we can. Mm -hmm. That's brilliant. Mm -hmm. That's brilliant. And so, you know, I, some of the friends I had, French majors who became doctors or, you know, the, the, what you study doesn't necessarily have to connect directly to what you're yeah. going to do. And... Uh, Google and Facebook and the present companies right now that are, are huge, uh, I'm sure they want people who don't just think the same way. They want people who think differently. And some of the ways that you think differently is to get a different kind of background in your education. You know, uh, globally, this idea of liberal arts is very odd, right? You go to school in Europe and Asia, you are forced to specialize at a very young age, and you mm -hmm. need to know. Uh, if you're going to be a doctor, it's um, I think... When you're going into undergraduate, that you start that start that path. Yeah, uh, and, and and in the U.S., there's a lot of schools as well that are more pre-professional or even professional. Mm -hmm. um, and liberal arts seems to be um, seems to be really the place where there's more elite schools, mm -hmm. um, including smaller schools. Um, almost like uh, it's something you can't afford uh, in, uh, in 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 other places. Mm -hmm. I mean, what, what 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 do you think about that? I mean, it's, it seems like it's becoming it is, uh, as a, let's say, market share of global education. It's, it's minuscule. And then U.S. education, it's still much smaller than people that you know, are, are part of the Dartmouth world or the Upper Valley world. That's what, that's what you know. Mm. Um, it, it just seems like it's a small part, um, which I guess is a, a, a deficiency, a mistake <laughs> from your point of view. Yeah, I, I'd say any time you start labeling people too early. This gets to our earlier point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Any, anytime you start labeling people too early, it, it cuts off opportunities that kids would have. I taught in Poland for one year, too. And uh, during that year, it found out that, and this was 27 years ago, so their system has changed as well, I'm sure. sure. But by the time they were in eighth grade, they were deciding whether they were going to technical school. In eighth grade? Eighth grade. Technical school or college educated. You can't. You can't know that. But it, sometimes... We do things for the convenience of the system rather than for the yes. intelligence of the program. Right, right. And that was convenient for the system. So as a, um, uh, as a business uh, professor, what I think about is, well, maybe there, maybe there are some data globally to help explain economic success. Because if, you get, if most kids by 8th grade or ninth or 10th, whatever it is, have to focus on an area... That's suboptimal um, compared to kind of what we've been talking about. Especially with the way the brain develops. Mm -hmm. The brain is still growing and adapting and um, at a very rapid rate when kids are teenagers. I wonder if that's one of the reasons why America is such an entrepreneurial place. You know, it's not just Silicon Valley, even though that's kind of mm -hmm. gigantic. But uh, America has always been uh, a place where new businesses are being created at a at a faster pace than anywhere else, with the possible exception of China now, although I'm not even sure that that data point. Um, and maybe that's part of, you know, 
different philosophy. Well, it's about education. It's also about immigration. Yes. We have until, uh, unfortunately, quite recently, uh, had very open doors for people from all over the world, the mm -hmm. best and the brightest mm -hmm. and not, and also some that are not, that have an opportunity, right? Yeah. Um, and you have, uh, um, um, your was it your father that was in Poland during the... He was in Germany. In yeah, Germany? He, was, he was there in World War II. He came up through Africa and Italy and France and ended up in Germany. But he met a Polish family there okay. uh, that asked him if he could help out. They had just had a baby, and they wanted to have the kid baptized. Hmm. And so he was a captain in the Army. He said, get in the Jeep. And so he drove <laughs> him down to a local church and had the kid baptized and then maintained that relationship. They were interested in, in developing a, a better life, an easier life. Uh, and they had just been through World War II mm. in Poland and in Germany. Mm -hmm. At the time, I know that um, my dad said, as long as you could guarantee a job and a place to live, you could become a sponsor for some of these families coming over from Europe. Huh. And so that's what he did. He sponsored this family to come over. They came over here. They came over to Kenosha, Wisconsin, and ended up in Milwaukee. But uh, they uh, they were able to get the job, and I remember frequently that uh, they would call and just check in and say, you know, this is what we're doing. And right. my, my father and mom uh, maintained a, a friendly relationship with that family. Well, it sounds like you're... So friendly, in fact, yeah. that when my father passed away, when he was 85, um, the boy that had been baptized yeah. spoke at the funeral. Oh, my. Wow. And talked about the difference that it made in their lives. Yeah. You see, think about this, the, the, the ability to have an impact on other, other people. In, in many ways, that's the purpose of being a teacher. That's the goal. That's the goal. Yeah, right? that is the goal. And, 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 and letting them know that they can continue that impact. That's, to others. Yeah. For others. Yeah. For, from a math teacher's perspective, which is one of the yeah. things that I taught, uh, I think that's the closest you can get to the idea of infinity. <laughs> you know, the, this idea of... Just passing on what you know and your perspective. Right. And then... Right. The students will take on whatever parts of that have meaning to them, right. and they will pass that on to other people right. who will pass it on to other people. That's, right. that's how culture changes, and it's also how culture gets, uh, gets transferred. Math teacher for yeah. a long time. Yeah. But yet theater's been a big part of your life, too. And, and English. I was an English major. I was so, English you know, lit and creative writing. What's, what's going on here? Uh, <laughs> you just have a lot of interest. I think that's for I sure. I think that's part of it. And uh, at a high school level, I was able to maintain both. I got certified in both and was able to both teach meaning... both, both English and math. Okay. And was able to continue that. And uh, I started in on theater right from the beginning, too. It just happened that the person who had run the theater program at Hanover High School was retiring the year mm -hmm. after I started, mm -hmm. and they were looking for somebody else. And I said, sure. Yeah. I mean, that was, that was how I approached most of the classes, too. They said a Russian lit class, uh, the teacher who taught Russian literature for a while is retiring. Sure. You know, I, I was willing to willing learn to all that stuff, even if I didn't have a, a strong background in it, because mm -hmm. education's about learning. It's not about... And you're modeling that for yourself. And, and for the students, I hope. Yeah. That that it's it's about um, it's not about knowing all the stuff ahead of time. It's about what kind of questions can we ask about this material? What does it remind us of? How can we talk about it? And what kind of impact is that going to have on wonder, our lives? I wonder how many people listening are thinking, you know, yeah, I raised my hand to say yes for this. Mm -hmm. I didn't have to. It wasn't mm -hmm. all that big a deal. Yeah. Or I didn't. Yeah. Uh, and you know, I, if you don't, it's not like you're a bad person. No, you, no. You just decided to. 
you probably decided to specialize or you had many other things going on in your life or whatever. But to teach your kid to raise her hand, yeah. that's something. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of like that third grader. Yeah. Never say I can't do it. Yeah. Right. So, so tell me about theater. That had a big impact on on kind of how your your philosophy and your your experience at Hanover. And as a principal too, I think it was the best training I got for my leadership of a school. Uh, how so? Well, I I directed some shows. Better than the program you did with me here. Well, <laughs> maybe not. Maybe not. Okay. Well, go ahead. This, so, this was a longer term. I reason. understand. Um, <laughs> well, part of it is you, you've got to learn to trust other people to do their work. Because when you're putting together a show, it's not about one person doing his or her job. It's about everybody recognizing what the goal is and then working together to achieve that goal. I remember, for example, uh, directing Les Mis over at the high school in 2003. And, uh, boy, that was a hard show. A hard show to do with high school students. Mm -hmm. You think of the soaring uh, uh, melodies of some of these mm -hmm songs and, and wanting to make sure everything just went smoothly. And then we decided also that not only did we want to just want to do the show um, well for the singing and acting, but we wanted the theater to, to feel good too. Right. So we built a turntable on stage and uh, had people walking on it and wanting the whole thing to work right. that way too. Um, you know, it was just a, a big production and it required everybody showing up every day to do the rehearsal. It right. required everyone in the backstage area to, to build this monstrous barricade that was going to fall apart at one point. <laughs> it took everybody to commit themselves because we wanted to do the best job we could. And that's what running a school is like, too. You want to get the parents, the teachers, the students all to say, we want to do the best job we can. And this is how we can do it. Let's right. come up with those ideas and let's go after it. And was this a, is this an example of where you purposely or consciously were thinking about that theater experience as you became a principal? Absolutely not. Absolutely because not. You're because you're reflecting on it now yeah. and realizing that helped yeah. in some way. Yeah. And in fact, I, I never wanted to be a principal. I, I never okay. wanted to go into administration at all. And I still have some hesitancy. How many it. years have you been principal? This is seven years. And soon you're going to step down yeah, and go back I'll to retire teaching. To, yeah, I'll go retire from yeah. administration and go back to teaching. Um, but it's been incredibly worthwhile. Yeah. And incredibly you didn't want to do it. No. Nope. Why not? I guess I don't like being in charge. I'd rather be someone in the background making things happen. When you're a teacher, you're in charge. Yeah, yeah. But you can, uh, you can duck a little bit. <laughs> you don't have to deal with some of the... I, I guess... The being in charge, I, I love being in charge of human ideas and uh, working through human ideas. Yes. I don't like as much being in charge of other people's behavior and choices. Yes. And you have more of that in administration than as a teacher. And, and so you, you, you said you found it um, valuable or rewarding. Very, very much so. Despite the... This, yeah. this kind of the, the hesitancy. Yeah, exactly. The, the so lack what, of aspiration. So what's the part? So this is a good example. You were, you know, in a business sense, we say, well, you were in the, you were in operations, you were in manufacturing, mm -hmm. you're the teacher, and all of a sudden you're running the whole the whole factory. Mm -hmm. And so, um, um, what did you learn from from that? What was that? Uh, I, you know, there's so many different lessons that you can pick up from mm -hmm. from the experience. I'd I'd say one of the um, lessons I'm proudest of is 
going into a situation where people didn't couldn't figure out how to get along so well. Yeah, they're they're very um, well educated, very competent, excellent at their craft. But the the group themselves were having a hard time getting along yep. and getting to the idea that we're going to be so much better if we help each other out. It's not about our individual successes. It's about our group success. And I, I think we've, we've gotten very much that way. So can you share a little bit of what you did to get, to get there? Because that's a problem that anyone in any organization yeah. has, especially when you have really you know, kind of um, professionals or, or you know, high-capability people. They're, they're great at what their job is, but they don't always play as nice as you like them to play. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's still, anytime you have a big group together, it's still going to show gonna up. happen. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'd, I'd say a couple of things worked really well. One was uh, analyzing what we were doing in terms of what was tradition and what was habit. Because traditions are really important for any institution, mm -hmm. and you want to maintain those traditions. Mm -hmm. Habits are those things that you do over and over again, even if they might not be of any value. How do you get people to kind of think that through? Uh, we talked as a whole group mm -hmm. about what it was that they loved most about the school. and what kinds of um, things that we were doing with the students that made the biggest difference in their learning. And so they would talk about some of these things. One of them is rep, where the kids get up in front of other students and perform for each other. Sometimes they play piano, sometimes they do magic tricks. Uh, but it's something where, even as first graders, they get in the habit of being in front of other people and right. performing. Sometimes as individuals and sometimes it's as It's a great thing. It takes away the groups. fear of having a, it's no big deal, you just do it. Yeah. So that was one way that we yeah. went through traditions and habits. And mm -hmm. some of the habits were things like uh, we've all got to sign up on a piece of paper in order to get something done. And there were quicker ways of doing that. And it wasn't that important uh, to have people's names right. on a piece of paper. So we did a lot of started transferring stuff over electronically right. to making sure well, that, that people had access to it. This, this idea of tradition versus habit is one, you know, you see it in business all the time. You mm -hmm. see it in organizations. I think it's a really good exercise, transfer mm -hmm. over. Absolutely. And you say there's another kind of technique or thing that you did that, um, that well, stood out? The other, the other key thing, I think, was helping people know what we're there for and reminding people what we were there for. So one of the first meetings I had with the full faculty was, why did you get into teaching in the first place? Yeah. And to remind people that there's this, and the stories were, were wonderful. It was just wonderful to hear mm. both the new teachers and the, the long-term veterans talk about mm -hmm. the importance to them of making a difference in other people's lives. Yeah. And so when we talk about ideas and making, um, making, or coming up with solutions to problems, we just use one mantra, and it was, "How does this impact student learning? Mm. How does this impact student learning?" So you got everyone to agree with that. That it, made sense. That's exactly that's right. Right. That, that's what we're there for. So that's the question you could ask. So if we're having a problem between a teacher and a parent, we take a look at it. And what kind of relationship would help students learn? Right. Not, not I'm mad at her, or I'm mad at him. It's so. What do we have to do in order to make that mm -hmm. more feasible? And, and going to that one goal, um, I think made a huge difference. And we started looking at all sorts of things that way. For example, we, uh, another point that I'm proud of is that um, at the time we'd do all sorts of accommodations for students who had physical disabilities. Okay. Might be a medical problem, you know, diabetes or whatever, but, mm -hmm. but we'd make sure that that person was taken care of. 
we have a number of kids, and, and it will grow, who have mental illness. And we weren't giving the same accommodations. In fact, we were getting mad at them because they weren't behaving the same way that other kids were behaving. And so they were interrupting classes. or that, That's the way we talk about it. And I said, you know, mental illness is not much different from physical illness. It just manifests itself differently. So what can we do to make it so that these kids all feel like they're a welcome, important part of right. our community? Yep. And let's make sure that we have the um, structures that help them move their way through our program. Right. These are, these are all had big impact, I think. Um, I think so. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and um, so you're going to step back, I guess, is it next year? Um, end of this year. End yeah. of this year. June 30th. Uh, 2019. 2019. Yeah. And um, I'm ambivalent you, about it. Yeah, I was going to ask you, looking forward to it. Uh, no. Were, I, were you teaching it uh, at all, a class, while you were a principal? Were you, did you have time to do that? I didn't have time, uh, uh, but I did teach individual classes. I, and you'd come in to do a, a specific session. That's right. Yeah. So when the sixth graders, for example, were developing their solar collectors, I did a, a lesson on theater and the parabola. Theater and the parabola. Yeah. All right. You yeah. got it. Okay. You, you brought it up. You got to explain <laughs> that one. <laughs> so when people go to the theater, they see all sorts of things. And the reason they see it is because of the lighting. And the lighting has a variety of instruments in a the theater that reflect light differently. Some are really tight spotlights and some are generalized lighting. Mm -hmm. And so I bring the students, the sixth graders down to take a look at all these special lights to see how they display light on stage and which one has the greatest focus. Mm -hmm. So there are ones with spherical reflectors so that oh, light wow. spreads okay, out a lot. I'm starting to see it come together there, now. There are ones that are <laughs> ellipsoidal reflectors so there's an ellipse, and at the two focuses, there's either the lamp or a lens. And then there are parabolic reflectors. And that parabolic reflector is the idea that they want to get to, ultimately, for coming up with these solar collectors. So we start in the theater. We talk about the lighting. You know, They notice all sorts of things. We go up to the uh, classroom, and I do a lesson on how do you make a parabola. And the kids come up with this. This is sixth graders. Normally, this was something I taught in freshman or sophomore year of high school. But if you put it out in little bits, right. students can figure out a lot of stuff. Well, so they figured out the formula for yeah. a parabola from this. Wow. Yeah. And that's what they well, needed in order to focus the light, in order to boil water in a brown bottle in the parabolic reflector that, might that be they a were good, developing. That's a great story. That might be an example also of what we know about how, brain, how our brains work. I mean, you're... You're cueing kids' brains with, in a way before they even start any of the kind of the math part of it. Mm -hmm. uh, they see the, the clear practicality and they like it and it's interesting and it's physical and they mm -hmm. can look, they can touch. Mm -hmm. uh, and then they go back and somehow the brain starts to make certain connections that would have been harder. Yeah, that's, that's a great that's a great example. Mm -hmm. So this gets us back to uh, creativity again. Mm -hmm. That's a creative way to teach, right? So how uh, how do you teach creativity? I'm a, I'm like a mega fan of creativity. Mm -hmm. I always thought, wouldn't it be great? But so many people tell me, how do you? You know, some people are more creative than others. You can't you can't you know how are you gonna you're not gonna teach someone to be a Picasso. Mm -hmm. Well, actually, you're not. Uh, but that shouldn't be our target. Is kind of what I'm saying. But right. tell me how, how you, you could, think about it. You can teach the background of skills that are necessary in order to potentially become a Picasso, though. You know, our our teacher takes a look at the variety of uh, 
artists out there and teaches students mm-hmm. their techniques. Their techniques. Once they've got their painting techniques or their artistic techniques, mm-hmm. they can take that to the next level. If they want to. Right. If we give them opportunity to. We'll, uh, for example, have little, have you seen the Spheros that are coming out? They're little robots. They're uh, round oh, balls. Okay. But the kids can program them to move around the school or, or what, whatever, but they have to learn coding in order to do that. If they didn't know anything about the coding, they wouldn't be able to make these things move. So we've got to teach them those background skills. How do you start coding? Uh, and once they figure out how to start coding, they don't need to know all the ways that you can code. Because suddenly they take what's already there, what they've already learned, and they add to it. Oh, is there a way I can do this? Well, let me figure it out. These are the different techniques. I can turn right. I can turn left. Right. I can roll. Right. Um, so how do I apply those? But right. the, other, the other part of creativity, I'd say, is pay attention. Pay attention to things like, what are you thinking about when you're just waking up? Moments of highest creativity. And when you're just going to sleep, what are you thinking about? What are you pulling together at that point? Uh, and if you pay attention to those moments, you realize you're, you're solving a lot of problems. You're solving a lot of difficult situations as you're in that semi-somnolent state. It's mind- so you have to pay attention. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, maybe you also read the Isaacson book on Leonardo da Vinci. Uh-huh. He paid attention. Yeah. Uh, to like an ultra, of course, ultra extreme, you know, looking at all sorts of things in nature. And he just would sit and look and study. And he had the ability to translate that into drawings and other, uh, including formulas. And he's kind of your classic example of combining mm-hmm. art and science mm-hmm. um, in ways that no one ever thought about. And he probably didn't think of them so much as different subject areas. No, probably didn't. They, they are all connected. Yeah, they're probably all all connected. And this idea of the kind of the building blocks, learning the techniques behind different artists, um, uh, or the coding example. Uh, so the idea here that is teach kids the the kind of the the alphabet almost mm-hmm. the the, al- the alphabet of knowledge of science, the alphabet of of art, and then let them create new words and new patterns. Give, give them opportunities. Ask, ask the questions. Uh, ask the questions in a big way. Don't say, what's two plus two? Yeah. Uh, which has a specific answer. Right. Ask, right. how might you apply your knowledge of mathematics to program a robot that we have right here? Right. And you so can they do could it. actually do it. It's yep. hands-on and it's yep. fun. Yep. And they see, the, they see the relevance. All yep. of those things are in place. We even had an experiment last year where we took a day off. Well, we didn't take the day off. We had it as the day of play. Mm-hmm. And the, the students organized the different areas. One of the rules was adults can't come up with the games. Mm. So the students all came up with the games, and then they uh, sent out invitations <laughs> to let people know what was going on. So while some would do a massive game of manhunt outside, others were building condominiums out of cardboard boxes in one of the rooms, uh, learning how to juggle in another room. Yeah. You know, there, there was all that. Adults were allowed to be part of the experience, but they can't, couldn't lead the experience. They couldn't lead the experience. Yeah. This is a great example also of, of, of there's an assumption often that the teacher or the professor is the only one that can create the lesson, uh, when in fact creativity requires each of us to create the lesson, mm-hmm. if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, all, it's actually one of my pet ideas that we haven't done yet here, but I think eventually I'll get around to making it happen, at least in my own class. 
why should I be the one that decides the curriculum only? Right. Um, why can't students come up with their own mini course or mm -hmm. mini module or, 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 or class day mm -hmm. um, and let them figure out how to do it? That's right. It's just a totally different way yeah. to think about it. Yeah. And it's actually much more closely aligned to the skill sets they're going to need in the real world as opposed to kind of listening to what someone who's thought about this forever kind of gives their, give, you know, says these are the various steps. And here's habit and tradition again. You know, what about faculty meetings? Who's in charge of the faculty meetings? You know, usually it's the principal or or usually. the administrator of some yeah. sort who's is just running them. You can run faculty meetings very differently. They could become professional development opportunities. Right. I like to have uh, teachers. I, I go into classes and watch what's going on, and I can see what's really having an impact on students. And when I see that, I ask the teacher if they could pass that on to the other teachers during a faculty meeting. So we've gone through the power of music, done some research on music, for example. Um, but the teachers talk about how they use music, and then we take a look at the research, and then we offer that to teachers. Wow. Hmm. And two weeks later, we find out, oh, I'm using music this way, I'm using music this way. It's because it has power that they'll keep using it. If it has no power, right. they'll let it drop. Exactly. And that's okay, too. Exactly. You know, Bill, sounds like we should bring you back to Dartmouth to uh, teach higher education how to teach a little bit differently, <laughs> given some of your own experiences. Um, uh, thank you. It's been great. I want to end with thank one you. quick thing, mm -hmm. which is I like to do a little uh, word association. All right. I didn't plan this out, so it's going to be off the top of my head. Well, it'll be off the top of my head then, too. Then that, that's fair. Maybe that's the rule I should do from now on. <laughs> uh, okay, so let's say um, teaching. Fun. That's perfect. I mean, I, I should stop with that, but I can't resist. <laughs> that was the first one that came to yeah, my mind. That's that's the idea, right? Okay, theater. Uh, playful. Your mom. Uh, deep and concerned. Dartmouth. Transition. Leadership. Hopeful. Perfect. This has been a very hopeful discussion, too. Lots of great ideas. Bill, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. Sid, thank you very much. Great to be here.